You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Please join me in welcoming Christopher Dudney here tonight. He's been writing art criticism for more than three decades and is a contributor of a wonderful essay for our catalogue accompanying the Chamber's exhibition. Dudney lives here in Toronto where he teaches creative writing and poetics at York University's Glendon campus. And in addition to all of these wonderful things, Christopher grew up in London, Ontario, where his parents were very good friends with Jack Chambers. Uh, thank you very much for coming tonight, and um, I'm going to give you, a, I guess, a, an idea, an inside look at London. Oh, we should take uh, turn off our cell phones, I just remembered. Um, have you noticed everybody's ring lately has been just using the old anachronistic telephone ring? Every, you know, everybody's reverted to the old ring, and, and then now whenever you know, I'm in a, in a shopping or something like that, I hear I think it's my phone ringing, and everybody picks up their phone. And, anyway. So we got that looked after. So yes, um, uh, Jack was, an, was a, f- a good friend of the family's, and, and that'll become c- clear as, as we proceed. Uh, we're starting off with um, uh, Jack was a South Londoner in London. Is anybody here from London, Ontario at all? Oh boy, that's very good. Two people. Well, you'll be, London was divided into two poles, north and south, um, two kind of entities, two solitudes, I guess. And, there was the South Londoners, uh, I guess myself and, and uh, Jack Chambers and Greg Colonel were, were from that side. The, London, Ontario is divided by two forks of the Thames River, and the south side is the south branch of the Thames River, and the north side is the north branch. And um, the London uh, Regional Art Gallery is right at the crux, in fact, right at the, del- the, sort of the, the point of the Y formed by those two, the confluence of those two rivers, which is kind of an interesting place for an art gallery to be. Um, Matthew Tietelbaum was once the... I guess the director of that art gallery, and he left London, of course, to come here, as we all know. <clears throat> um, so Jack attended Victoria Public School, Victoria. He was born in Victoria Hospital. We were all born in Victoria Hospital, um, and he. This is no. This is before I was born, because Jack was 20 years older than I was. So what I'm relating right now was, was prior to my birth. I don't know how I was privy to this information, but uh, in the womb, I guess. Anyway, just, just from what we know about Jack. Um, in 1944, he went to Beck Collegiate, um, which is where my father taught art. And uh, my father was Selman Dude, and he was the first, his first art teacher. And I think, I like to think that uh, Jack got the, the, the artistic bug, or the, the painting bug, from my father. Um, in fact, I'm pretty sure that must have been the case. Um, uh, Jack only had about a, a year of uh, my father's uh, tutelage because he left, my father left back, um, I guess, 1945, 44, or something, because um, he was protesting. It was a very interesting situation. Uh, London, Ontario was, I mean, a lot of people, there was a lot of anti Semitism still, even, you know, this is before the, the end of the Second World War. And there was a teacher who was being, I guess, uh, let go or something because of this, and, and my father decided that he would tender his resignation. Uh, along, and he convinced everybody else, everybody else in the staff of this, uh, all the other teachers, to tender the resignation on the same day. If they all did it, then they could save this person's job. But uh, my father, you know, came in and tendered his resignation, and his turned out to be the only one. <laughs> so he lost his job, and Jack lost his art teacher. <clears throat> but uh, Jack went on then to the London Regional Art Gallery, an art museum, I guess it was called, yeah, London Regional Library and an Art Museum, which is the big central. Uh, a gallery downtown, and uh, took Saturday afternoon classes there, which again is something that every artist that came out of London, Ontario, did those Saturday afternoon classes. I remember I did them myself um, in the hallway. I remember in the stairwell going up to the art classes, there was a Paul Peel painting. I don't know if you're familiar with Paul Peel. He's sort of a classic, uh, classicist artist uh, um, uh, from London, Ontario, and it was one of those very sentimental kind of Rockwell type, uh, you know, Norman Rockwell type paintings of two little naked children with their bums towards you, uh, rubbing their hands against a, a, a fiery hearth. And, uh, that was, I'm sure Jack must have gone by that same painting on the way to his classes. Um, then he went to HBBO Technical School, which is again everybody, Greg Kernel, Ron Martin, 
the whole shebang, Murray Favreau, everybody went to HPBL Technical School, which I think should be up there with the Slade, really, you know, in terms of its uh, uh, prestige, but it, but it isn't. It's just HPBL Technical School. It's like Central Tech here in, Tor in Toronto, I suppose. But it had a very good teacher there. His name was Herb Aris, and Herb really built up a fabulous little school. And it, that, again, was very important for the genesis of, of the London art scene, which comes up after this. I think it was around this period of time, 1948, that Jack painted, um, oh, and I've got a laser pointer. <laughs> I love these things. Not that the, I need to point anything out on this, but um, in 19, 1948, he painted this, these lilies, and this is the painting that started his entire career. Now, the interesting thing about this painting is that he won, I think, the Western Art League's uh, prize for this painting. You can, can you all hear me? And um, this was the painting that really, because he won the prize, I think he thought, well, maybe, gee, maybe I might have a career as an artist. And so this is really kind of what started his whole career. And uh, this painting also hung in the front hallway of my house as I was growing up. So I, I really grew up with this painting. And when you, you grow up with a painting, you, you really get to understand it and to see it in all its lights and moods and that kind of thing. And um, these are obviously Easter lilies. Um, and I think that the painting actually has some staying power. It's not a bad you know, quasi-abstract representational piece. Um, so after he did this, then Jack, then he went on to his, his adventures. Um, he got a, part, a series of part-time jobs and then, um, then he spent about five months and in uh, Mexico City at, at the Escuela de Bellas Artes, uh, and then back to London, and then he did, then he went to UWO. Um, <clears throat> I'm just going to advance this. And there he met Ross Whitman. And this is a picture, this is a painting that he did much later, about in 1961, in fact, but we're going to go out of sequence just briefly uh, to sh give you an idea of, of what Ross looked like then and, and Marion. It's a very accurate uh, portrait of him. Um, this, this hand here, it's interesting enough, I think you, Ross mentioned that this was not even her hand, that Jack took the hand of his, I think it was his mother-in-law, something like that, and, and tipped it in, or somebody that he knew, because he didn't like the way her hand looked. So it's the beginning of that kind of collage technique, you know, where Jack would suddenly would take a, a photograph or some element from another photograph and, and make up his own sort of collage representation. Um, but Ross Whitman uh, it was a brilliant rhetorician and, and somebody that we all knew in, in the community there, a friend of my parents as well, Marion Ross. Marion uh, went on to become, I guess, number four, number three uh, in terms of, uh, in the world, uh, stand, standing of uh, union analysts. She was a brilliant union analyst and, and uh, uh, one of the top ones. So I think, you know, at the pecking order, we go from Jung uh, to, um, she'd be about third or fourth, I think. Anyway, a brilliant career, and, and Ross was a, a fabulous man and, and very influential. He got Jack into poetry, and Jack started writing poetry this time. So here's Jack painting, writing poetry. He wasn't really an, an academic, a, a good academic, and he dropped out of, of university at this point. And this is when he went um, uh, to go to Spain. Um, and, and he spent, as you probably know from the chronology of, of the, of the uh, catalog, he spent uh, from 1954 to 1961 in Spain. Okay, we're going to go on to the next one. Here's, this is, <laughs> now this was like 1960. And um, this is another painting that I, that I grew up with in the house. And uh, this was more disturbing than the other one, <laughs> obviously for a kid. You know, just you know, when you're getting your sort of gender notions and things, and then this 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 breast under the armpit was really disturbing for me. Um, you know, it, it was just wrong. It always this very just still disturbs me now. I I like this little castanet-headed figure though, this little demonic figure here, very interesting. And of course, here's this sort of a la Picasso uh, priest figure on his uh, on his way up to heaven. And of course, when Jack was in Spain, it was that was when he really began to get into Catholicism, and, and it became, in fact, he converted to Catholicism. Um, here we have like a very Picasso, really Picasso-esque element here, um, and I, both, I think this is one of the few times that you'll see that influence of Picasso, but Jack, as we'll see later, actually met Picasso, and, and um, uh, he, I think he, he, he admired and respected him. The colors in this are very interesting, very stark, 
the, the, red, the red band being the only sort of primary color and the rest of it are these earthen and gray colors. He's never really quite done something like this since. It's kind of a one-off piece. But again, this is one of the pieces that I grew up with. Uh, there's another piece I grew up uh, with that was over the mantelpiece uh, called Olga at the South Pole, uh, which isn't in this series. But it was a very, one of, in, in more like his later uh, work, which um, uh, we'll, we'll get into uh, next after this. But during this period of time, 1962, when Jack got back from, uh, from Europe, um, he was a frequent guest at Sunday. We used to have these Sunday dinners. My parents were not only, my father was not only a patron, but also he, had, he invited artists over, I think probably one of their big meals of the week. We would have roasts and, and, and uh, fiddleheads and that kind of thing, and my mother would put out quite a platter. And then Gray Colonel would often be there, and sometimes with his wife, um, Sheila. Jack Chambers was there when, and when Olga came, plus all of us kids. So it would be like four kids. I mean, the table, and it was not a big table. I, I don't know how they all fit around it. A few bottles of wine, always Jack liked his red wine. And, um, and a really um, and a fantastic conversation. And I, of course, I was growing up, I was about 10 at this point, and was sort of a, a fly in the wall, as it were, or a kid at the table, listening to these spectacular, very witty conversations. That, uh, um, and for years, this went on. Um, my brother, Key, who's older, 10 years older than me, sort of closer to Jack in age, set up a lithographic press down in the basement. And then Jack would often be over making lithographs uh, with the lithographic stones, which come from Germany, you know, lithographic quarrying. It's all Jurassic limestone, incidentally. That's where they found the um, Archaeopteryx, was in that quarry. Anyway, just on the side there. Um, <clears throat> anyway, we always went to Jack's openings, and, and we were great supporters of his work. So there's, there was a lot of community, and there was a lot of familial, familial community. And, and so um, I kind of just grew up you know, in the studios and stuff like that. Um, Jack himself uh, was very witty, he was, he was um, very crisp. He always had red cheeks. And um, when he got back from Spain, uh, he had this uh, sense of like a duende. He had a, there was a little kind of a heaviness, a profundity to Jack. Uh, one always sensed with Jack there was the mortality issue was somehow at the back of everything. There was, this, there was that really a large notion for him. In fact, he said at one point, I think Ross Whitman put this in the catalog, is that he, he, he looked forward to dying. It was a very strange thing to say. He said not that he didn't like living, and he, and he enjoyed life, but he had the sense of, of adventure. So there's always this notion of mortality uh, with Jack's work. Um, but anyway, he almost, when he came back from, anyway, I keep saying that, when he came back from Spain, he, he, um, he almost had an accent. It was, the most, it was a curious thing. He would end his sentences with A, but not in the, not in the uh, Canadian sense of A, but, but with a, as if he's trying to interpret himself as he's speaking. So Jack really became uh, Iberian. He became very, um, very Spanish. And, and that was exotic in London, Ontario. And it was very exotic when Olga came, who actually was Spanish. And, and she was lovely, just a lovely woman. And um, <clears throat> so let me go on now to this is kind of the beginning of Jack's golden age. Um, this is McGillivary County, McGillivary. McGilvery, which is actually a misspelling, um, <laughs> but that's the way it is. That's the title. Um, I don't know if you can see this that clearly, but this is very similar. See these discs? Uh, this is a very interesting thing. Now, Jack called these molecular structures, um, but they actually look to me a little bit like uh, Delaunay. I don't know if you know Paul Delaunay, the, the French painter, who did basically discs, which uh, very much influenced uh, Gray Colonel's work as well. Gray Colonel did a lot of these discs. In fact, later on, Bob Fones did these kinds of discs as well. Uh, here on the table, which, which the de detail I don't think is that clear, you can see a lot of silver and porcelain service, and, the, and these are heaps heaped with um, fruits and, and, and flowers, and this whole notion of this is sort of a cornucopia uh, of life. And then here, these are uh, Jack's relatives the, uh, from the McIntyre side. And, and from the other side. So these are his, his grandparents to a certain, you know. And um, there's this notion of them kind of presiding over the scene, but also like votive talismans, they're kind of floating up, uh, almost like disembodied spirits. So there's, a, again, this kind of funereal sense to his work that uh, as a kid kind of disturbed me. <laughs> but, um, we, but still, very luscious, uh, very sensual. Um, <clears throat> uh, great Colonel at 62, he, he had a studio at this time in London. Uh, or no, he, he had not, didn't have a studio. 
a Greg Colonel had a studio, sorry, Jack didn't. And um, in 1961, Greg had already started Region Magazine. Um, and uh, I used to visit Greg Colonel's gallery. I was 11 at the time, and I remember thinking, um, 62, I used to be watching a Peter Gunn on television. I don't know if you remember Peter Gunn, that program, and had this music, and, and there was beatniks always. And, and I always thought I was looking for beatniks in London, Ontario, and I thought, I thought, well, maybe Greg Colonel would be the closest thing, you know, so I would hang around his studio. And, he had these collections of cars and stuff, and when Jack finally got his studio, I'd hang around there looking for beatniks as well, but I never did find beatniks. Sometimes I would go downstairs into, you know, a little, I, I expected to find a little jazz club filled with beatniks, you know. Never did happen. Um, <clears throat> then in, um, in the fall of 1960, my dad, just before that, my dad founded the, um, the Artist's Workshop which was very good for Jack because Jack began to teach at the artist workshops. I, and I don't know how, I don't know if my dad actually paid for the rent out of his own pocket and paid, you know, and my father wasn't making that much money and also paid for these teachers. I have no idea. It went on for years, the artist workshop, but that's where Jack got his, his first studio and, and uh, he started painting there. So he, between classes, he would use that space uh, uh, to start, th like, like this, in fact, was one of the paintings that I think that he did partially at that, at that um, at the artist work workshop. Um, I can remember visiting him there, visiting that, and, and seeing him at work, and you know the smell of his, those turpentine bottles and the, and the little brushes that he used, because he used a lot of little baby food uh, cans, and, and they were always spread out on, on tables in front of his canvas. Um, <clears throat> now we're jumping ahead to 1963, and the other thing that we used to do on Sundays before the Sunday dinners was we would go on excursions. Uh, we often would go on little expeditions because my, my father was a, also an archaeologist and a geologist and there was a lot of natural history interest in the family so we would end up uh, uh, going to uh, small towns um, around London um, like Turconnell and uh, Kettle Point on Lake Huron which is where the concretions were right by the Indian Reserve there and um, uh, Arva. Uh, which was one of the um, more important towns that um, uh, that we went to, in a sense that I mean it's a small town, but Arva for some reason had this um, this kind of legendary kind of it's all a little bit like the surrealist, you know, when they had I think Andre Breton had this sort of stations of the cross around Paris, these areas that were kind of sacred, they were kind of very important, Arva and Turcano, but particularly Arva was very important that way and. Um, Nancy uh, Poole, uh, who we will hear more about, lived in Arva. Uh, she had a big house there, in fact, a mansion. Um, and this is a picture of Nancy in the field behind their house um, with their little daughter, Andrea. Um, and again, this is classic 1963 Jack Chambers work because we have, um, you know, the flowers. Again, this, this very sensual uh, um, foreground. But here we ha it's opening up a little bit more into the landscape. When we have the sky, we have some clouds here. Um, this is very, it's a very idyllic scene. Um, these country walks that we went on were, were marvelous. And I always remember Jack, uh, you know, his, with again, his red cheeks. Sometimes he had, he had a little bit of asthma, a touch of asthma. And he, um, um, he would like to just go out and sort of get, and get some air on these walks. Um, the Arbor Walks were, were quite interesting. Now, we sometimes would visit um, the pools, not that often. They were, a little, they were fairly private. I remember Nancy drove at Bentley, <laughs> and uh, uh, it was a very large house, and they had these wonderful, in front of their house, they had a little uh, orchard of plums, which were really luscious, really good plums in the summer. At that time, London had about a population of 250,000, and um, it was big enough to be anonymous, but uh, small enough that there was a network, a really intimate network of scientists and artists and, and critics. And um, there were, my friends were, my parents were friends with a, a larger circle, and they would often have parties, these people over. It was Herb and Mark Harris was there, and Jim and Ann Kemp, and Nancy and Bill Poole, and Bill and Susan Down. And Tony Urquhart uh, was in London at this point, and uh, he became a friend of Jack and, and Olga's as well. And um, Nancy Poole, of course, becomes figures later because as Jack's career develops, she turns into a collector of his work, and eventually she becomes a, a dealer. In fact, she became his exclusive dealer in 1969, uh, along with Av Isaacs in Toronto. It's kind of an interesting little bit of politics there because uh, Nancy eventually kind of squeezed Av out. In fact, there's in the catalog, 
in the chronology that uh, uh, Greg did, there's a, um, uh, a wonderful letter, well, I don't know if it's that wonderful, but a letter from uh, um, Av to Jack, sort of complaining more or less about what's been happening in terms of, because when Jack hit it big, uh, Nancy kind of got the exclusive rights to sell his work in London, and, and, and uh, Av, I guess, would see it as a loss of income, quite rightfully, I suppose. <coughs> Um, and um, so that's that's 63, which is really kind of the golden age to a certain extent. Um, now this is uh, London, Ontario, and here we have a view from the top of, there's a moraine that runs in southern London, Ontario called Winery Hill, quite locally. In fact, a London winery is on top of it. I guess that's why. And um, this is a view <coughs> north from that lookout point over Springbank Park. <coughs> and um, this was another Sunday afternoon uh, destination where we would go for walks, country walks, before you know our, those wonderful dinners. And um, here we have a view looking over past the river uh, to the fields on the other side, and we can just see some fall color beginning. Um, underneath there is, um, <coughs> you can't see it, it's hidden by these trees in the foreground is a, <coughs> excuse me, Victoria Park, not Victoria, Storybook Park, which has a, a strange little theme park in it called Storybook Gardens. It has a, a Humpty Dumpty with a, a headless Humpty Dumpty that you can put your own head in and be photographed with. And, and uh, it had a, um, uh, oh, it had a Hickory Dickory Dock, uh, which was a, a clock that had um, hundreds of little white mice. Uh, I guess, yeah, the mice running up the clock, that's right. Uh, the mice were living there and breeding like mad. And, and uh, I remember one time my mother took me there, and I, um, uh, I guess it was a mother mouse was eating her babies because um, there was, you know, an overpopulation, kind of some kind of biological thing that happens. I don't know, but uh, it's rather gruesome. <coughs> um, there was also peacocks in that, and then there, there's a, there's some uh, drawings by Jack of the peacocks from from Storybook Gardens. Uh, and there was also the famous seal that escaped Slippery the, the seal, who got into the river. I don't know how people would see a seal swimming down the Thames River, but he got all the way to Windsor, I guess, or something like that, before they got him again. <coughs> um, <laughs> anyway, so Jack, uh, in 65, <coughs> two years after this, Jack had his first show at the uh, Forum gallery in New York. Uh, Jack's career is incrementally starting, although he didn't get a can of the council grant for years and years and years. So the, he felt, I think he felt badly about that, but he finally did start getting them. Everybody else got them. <coughs> um, <coughs> anyway, New York. He goes to New York in 1965. He's got a show at the Forum Gallery, a, a group show, and while he's there, he gets mugged. Um, I don't know if people know about this. When he came back to London and told us the story one Sunday uh, at one Sunday dinner, and, and uh, when he was in a clinic, I guess getting treated for, <clears throat> I guess a head injury or something, um, he saw uh, a man, I guess a, a street person, who had an injury to, injury to his leg and they had to take his shoes and socks off. And Jack remembered how the guy's, finger, guy's uh, toenails had grown right around, curved down around the end of his toes. I remember thinking, that's kind of a yucky thing. <laughs> but Jack always had these little details. He always. He was fascinated with a little bit of the, with the macabre a little bit, too, and he'd always get into that a little bit, so. Um, <clears throat> and when I was 15, uh, which is 60, 66, I guess, or 14 or 15, I forget which, I, I, Jack actually gave me lessons, and I think this is another opportunity that, for my parents to give him some money when he was still you know, trying to build his, uh, his income up as an artist. Um, <clears throat> and. It was good for me. It was actually interesting to, to take these lessons because he, he, he had a bust, uh, sort of a, a, a white plaster, classic bust of, of, a, of a figure. Um, and he told me you know, to start drawing. But the way he instructed me to do it was kind of interesting because it was, uh, he would have me work with, with a little bit of charcoal, a little bit of graphite, and, and erase, actually, as much as I was putting in contours. And, and, under his tutelage, I ended up constructing something that was, you know, it wasn't too bad. It was, it was a little, a little like awkward, but, but <clears throat> what, what I, what we ended up with was a kind of a Jack Chambers, and I realized it was interesting to, to sort of see how he did things, as much by erasure, at least when it came to those drawing, that drawing technique, as, as by, you know, by, you know, doing contours and and, uh, and volumes and things like that. So it, it was always light. <clears throat> Everything was 
kind of blossoming and overexposing. There's always this notion with his work of light, and that gave it that kind of softness, which I think is one of the better qualities of, of his work, one of the good qualities. <clears throat> Here we have a friend of his, and, whoops, I guess I should use this. This is um, <clears throat> a neighbor. I don't know who these are. They look like carolers. All things are must fall, of course, is a, a reference to the, I guess, a pun on the word, on the fall, but the social notion that, you know, Christmas is coming and, and the seasons are changing. Um, but I, I, I just love this, this wonderful treatment of the, of the foliage and the landscape that obviously Jack really liked too. And I think that Jack tried to, tried to get into the, the Spanish landscape. I think that the Spanish landscape sort of imbued itself into him. But really, this is the landscape that he, that he loved. And that experience, the sojourn in, in Spain, I think gave him the perspective to really see what it was that was intimate about him. And this is kind of a regionalism uh, that comes from... Uh, you know, just from the heart. Um, so let's go on now to... Uh, now we're jumping way ahead. Uh, this is the 401 towards London. Great painting. The 401, of course, was the route... It was, it was fairly... It was only about 10 years old, I think, at this point. It had been only constructed fairly recently. Um, again, this is the painting that famously Jack was on his way to Toronto and he looked into his rearview mirror and he saw this particular scene, well not this particular scene, but something very close to this, and stopped the car and got out and looked back, he got on the overpass to look back at the scene, and he had this one of these moments, and these, these moments are what he would, would go on to be called perceptualism, which was a moment in which, um, a very charged moment, in which a lot of emotional and a lot of uh, personal vectors kind of converge. And so for him, this is one of those moments, and, he, and, and this is the beginning of a whole uh, new sequence in his work, <clears throat> uh, where he started working more from, uh, from uh, photographs. Let's just go back a little bit here. For instance, this, this was done in the open air. This was done au plein air um, with an easel, um, whereas here you can see uh, a lot of this painting is, is, was perhaps done in, in plein air, but we have these photographs starting to come in. And, and then here, this is entirely from a photograph. So he used photographs as tools to recapture these moments. So it wasn't just a slavish kind of a slavish reproduction of a photograph, but rather a photograph was like a note that assisted him to get to this point. <clears throat> so between uh, the last one and this one, there's been a lot of stuff happening in London, Ontario. The, uh, the Region Gallery in 1966 was supplanted by the 2020 Gallery, and uh, that operated until 1970. Um, James Rainey, James Rainey, the uh, the poet and playwright, he opened up the Alpha Centre in 1966. I think this is really kind of the the peak of the of the regionalism in London, Ontario, and and London was became a, a nationally a recognized phenomenon, and critics and, and curators, you know, flocked to it from all over the country. The Nihilist Spasm Band um, was playing weekly at the York Hotel. That was an interesting event, too, because people would go, and Jack would come and, and go to the York Hotel. This is Greg Colonel and Murray Favreau and Hugh, um, Hugh McIntyre, which we used to call Huge McIntyre because he was a large man, um, and Bill Exley, and, and they would play anti-music. This was like just screaming noise uh, with kazoos. And the whole point was not to have any, at any one point, actual any music happening at all. So they were trying to avoid music, and, and, and it was quite loud, and they had amplifiers, and... It was interesting in London, which is at that point a fairly provincial uh, insurance town, uh, to have this group of like insane radicals uh, uh, playing, you know, getting insinuating themselves into the into the local uh, entertainment infrastructure. You know, so you could walk into the York. I can remember, always remember people walking in and just <laughs> like shaking their heads and walking out again. They're like, what, what is this? You know. But they always got a, a nice crowd there of, of two and three people and. <laughs> um, it was, it was a very interesting period of time. So what we, who we have here at this time? We have Ron Martin, we have David Rabinowicz, Ryden Rabinowicz, Murray Favreau. I mean, the Rabinowiczs are doing you know, minimal sculpture, major sculpture. Uh, Murray Favreau, Bernice Vincent, uh, Bob Bozak, Peter Redinger. I don't know if you remember him. He did those, you know, those fiberglass kind of droopy things, you know. And, um, and later came Patterson Ewan was working there, Claude Breeze, Robert Fones. Uh, came from, it was a part of that scene, Tom Benner, Ron Benner, Jamili Hassan. So this was an extraordinary, I mean, looking back at it now, it's hard to believe that that all happened there in, in London, but it was happening at that point. So it was a very interesting town to, to grow up in. 
Um, <laughs> I remember, actually the year after, yeah, 1968 was about this year, Jack went to back to Spain, and on the way, he asked me if I wanted to get some Spanish boots. He, he would get me some Spanish boots, so he took imprints of my feet, and I gave it to him, and he, he, he came back with a pair of custom-made Spanish boots for me, which, was, which fit perfectly, just like a glove. They're beautiful boots. But he, he related how he'd walked around with his new son, I guess, uh, was it John? Or Diego, no, little Diego was born. Because he had also two kids by this time. Olga, right away, uh, they started having kids. And uh, uh, he rocked around the hot sun, I guess, in Madrid with Diego on his shoulders to get me these boots. And I remember, uh, I guess there was this notion that uh, he'd gone through some kind of, you know, hell to get these things for me. But it, they were good boots. I appreciated them, you know. Uh, what did I say, you know? Um, <laughs> um, so let's see. Let me go here. So the 401. So let's go next. Okay, so 19, now we're, we're jumping back a little bit because what happens now, 1967, around the time that he painted the, the 401, um, uh, Michael Ondaatje and Michael and Kim Ondaatje moved to London. So in 1967, uh, there's not only a, um, you know, this visual scene going on, but, but now uh, a literary scene because you know, James was, uh, attracted people because he was a fairly well-known Canadian poet. So um, Michael uh, was hired at the... University of Western Ontario, and Michael very quickly gravitated to the art scene and became friends almost immediately with Greg and Jack and, um, and, and a lot of these uh, people. So, and, and this is a, um, a lot of the artists in London. This is um, one of Jack's paintings, an early painting, 1959. Uh, one year later, this is actually more or less a, a Spanish painting. Um, very different. Again, a little, bit, a little bit reminiscent, perhaps, of The Flying Saint. But this, this painting was used by Michael Ondaatje for the cover of a book from Coach House Press um, that uh, came out in um, 1969 called The Man with Seven Toes. So Michael and Kim uh, Ondaatje and, and, uh, and uh, Jack and Olga became very good friends and um, uh, they went on many excursions together. Um, and here is a picture of their kids. That's, um, th there's three little kids to the left, I guess, uh, by um, Diego's leg. That's Diego hopping, leapfrogging over Jack. This is at uh, Lake Huron, and we'll get into the Lake Huron connection in shortly, because Lake Huron became very important for Jack. Um, and that's Diego jumping over Jack. I guess that must be John to the right. I'm not sure. Doesn't really look like John, but um, that's um, Griffin Andachi and then Quentin Andachi. And then the other kid, I don't know who he is, and I think that's Skylar um, Jones there. Kim's uh, da daughter by a previous marriage. So you can see that there was, um, you know, they, they got very, very intimate very quickly. Um, Jack at this point uh, started the Canadian Artists' Representation, which was a union because somebody had suggested to Jack that they use some of his images for free in a catalog. And Jack thought, why would any other profession allow you to use their work? Would a lawyer? You know, did, did, would lawyers work for free? Would they say, well, could you represent so-and-so for, you know, Jack always thought that, he, that there was an inequity there about artists never, not getting remunerated for their work. So he started the Canadian Artists Representation Organization, and that was in, I guess, 1969. Um, and the national executive was, uh, was, was, was Jack, and Kim Andachi, and Tony Urquhart. Um, I think in terms of regionalism that Tony and, uh, and Greg and Jack were sort of the central three figures who kind of, in, sen in a sense, uh, did, had the mandate and, and, the, and the, the original, were the original sort of instigators of the regionalism movement. <clears throat> um, okay, here's on Sunday morning, number two. This is Jack's house. And it, for, this, for the purpose of this painting, the television is on a little stool a little side table, um, uh, and in actuality, he was most often on the floor. Um, his house was really strangely sparsely far, uh, uh, um, uh, furnished. Um, I mean, it really was kind of as, as empty, almost as Lutheran as this picture would suggest. You can see up above on the left side of the, of the wall, there's a painting. It's a Jack, a great colonel a piece of hockey sticks. He just took prints off hockey sticks. And um, 
that's right up there. Um, that's, I guess, Diego and John. Out, out there, that's North London. In fact, we're, we're looking east, uh, and uh, I think you can see the back of the Downs house, Susan and Bill Down, who were patrons of Jack's and, and also very close to him. Um, up, if you had x-ray vision through that wall, uh, would be James Rainey and Colleen Rainey's uh, residence. A lot of English professors lived in this part of London. Um, there's somebody walking out there. You can the interesting thing about this is those houses are actually much closer because uh, Jack used, one thing he never used was really good, super good equipment. He always used like stuff so that the, 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 the lenses actually push things away from, you know, fr from the, uh, he, I, I wish he'd use better. Anyway, the, here's the, um, this is uh, the Volkswagen uh, bug that he had um, that just a few years later would be burnt out by one of his neighbor, his friend's kids. Uh, he borrowed it and took it out to Bayfield and, and uh, drove it in second the whole way, um, which is only a half hour, but if you drive a Volkswagen bug in second, you know, at very high speed, it'll, it'll burn it out. That shows you how generous he was, and, and I don't know how they resolved that situation. <laughs> I forget. Very interesting. Um, and also, yeah, uh, Jeffrey and Goldie Rands would live right here if you had x-ray vision, too. So there were a lot of people in that, in that neighborhood. And it's interesting that Jack got a house there, because that's an expensive part of town. Uh, but I think somehow he finagled it. Um, next. Okay, here we go. Victoria Hospital. This is my, I guess, one of my favorite paintings of Jack's. It's a, it's a, now, this is one of the, the browner versions, as I was explaining earlier, um, I guess, to Kathleen, you know, about... You can get, this painting is very hard to photograph, and sometimes you get, depending on if you, if you go to the red end of the spectrum, you get this brown version, or if you go to the, um, the blue end of the spectrum, you get a much grayer, a grayer version. But this still has that, that wonderful mood. This is very unusual for, for, for Jack to paint uh, a scene where it's completely overcast. And this is one of those featureless overcast days where it's just stratus clouds. And we get these days in London, Ontario, where it's, the temperature might be hovering around zero. It's, it's kind of mild. It's kind of a mild, almost a, 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 um, it's almost a sensual, um, it's not a necessarily a bleak light. I mean, a lot of people look at this thing and say, geez, you know, yuck. Horror, just, you know, the hospital, like a, a gulag, looming, you know, like a, um, you know, a, a burned out aqueduct over a des desolate landscape. But, but actually, this, this has a beautiful powdery light to it. And, and the shadows under the trees um, right there, uh, it's really beautifully done. And there's almost like, um, like, like a zen, um, like a, like sort of like a zen ink, ink wash painting. And this is looking north. This is the Victoria Hospital. Everybody was born there, like I was saying. I was born there. Jack was born there. I think Greg was born there. Jack eventually dies at that same hospital. In fact, he's painting this just after his diagnosis. He started it before his diagnosis um, because he and Gray Colonel decided together, and they were very good friends, um, uh, that um, they would both paint uh, a view of Victoria Hospital. This is the view actually from Jack, from Greg's studio, Gray Colonel's studio. This is the exact view out of the back, his back window from his studio itself, which is where uh, Jack took the photograph and the studies uh, for Victoria Hospital. And we'll go on, we'll see Jack's version as well. Um, um, so the next, this is, well, where do I live? Yeah, I live over here. <laughs> South London is like, uh, this is like the south branch of the Thames. You can't see it, it goes through there. And then, I mean, it looks like the country. That looks like a barn over there. <laughs> it's kind of interesting to see how much uh, nature is you know, right downtown, and, and this is sort of desolate land here, although Greg turns it into a farmer's field in his painting. There's a, now, there's a resemblance between this version of Victoria Hospital uh, by, uh, by Jack and this painting, it seems to me. Very similar, because again, we have this overcast day, this beautiful, featureless, uh, sh shadowless, um, powdery light. So there, there's no definite shadows anywhere, and so we have this black, you know, of the trees against, or black of the figures against this white backdrop, and, and again that sky, which is, um, which is cloudy and futureless. Again, this is um, Bruegel, Peter Bruegel, it's called The Hunters in the Snow, it's from 1528 or something. Intra incidentally, there, of course, that's Holland, 
unusual that the, what, that the ponds are frozen like that, which, you know, they only froze over this winter, this, once, this century, or in the last hundred years. But at this time, the reason they were freezing over every winter, and they had since 1450, because there was a little ice age. It was a 400-year-long ice age that hit Europe, which is what ended the, the Viking colonies in Greenland. The 400-year ice age lasted from 1450 to 1850. And this was like 100 years after the onset of the small ice age. An interesting period of time. <laughs> Here's, this is Greg's version. Oh, I mean, look at the difference. It's incredible. You know, there's Jack. You know, it's very, very stately. You know, the, 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 the trees. The, and then, you know, there's, they, they couldn't be any more different, these guys. And yet they had a very powerful respect for each other. They had a great friendship. They were um, both of them very practical, very pragmatic. But one, a classicist, you know, Jack, very in the classical tradition, and, and Greg, obviously, uh, in, in Greg's tradition. <laughs> this, is, this is wonderful. Now, these numbers are interesting, because all these numbers uh, relate to things that happened, memories of Jack's, and also people that he knows. Uh, this one here, for instance, is, uh, this was 69. My father had a heart operation in um, Victoria Hospital, and th that was his window. That was the window of his room, as Jack was painting, doing his painting. And all these numbers refer to things. He has a list right there, you know, beside the recorder, which also has the sounds. And he's turned this into a, a field, a farmer's field. And there's the same trees. There's uh, a Greg's version of the trees. And of course, there's you know collisions in the sky and all sorts of things going on. Um, so it's funny that these two um, were so were so close to each other, and yet were so uh, aesthetically uh, at, at, at counterpoints. Um, but they were both very anti-bourgeois, and within, the, again, the context of this insurance town, 250,000, that was very staid, very conservative, uh, they were sort of uh, pointedly uh, kind of utilitarian work, sort of uh, uh, very anti-bourgeois. So it was, it was a, a really refreshing environment to grow up in. But at the same time, Greg was a, just a, he had an amazing, inexhaustible knowledge of, of European art, uh, and uh, superb, actually, uh, taste in, 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 in most things. <clears throat> um, let's go on now to Diego sleeping. <clears throat> um, here again, we have, uh, here's, here's uh, one of uh, Greg's paintings, and, and, and this is the, the other side of the living room from that first step, um, the, um, <clears throat> the kids watching TV, the children watching TV. Uh, here we have Diego sleeping on the couch, uh, this is uh, Greg's, I think, homage to probably Michael Snow, I suppose, the, the walking woman. I'm not sure. I mean, it has to be, right? <laughs> um, here's Olga on the phone in the distance, again, in, in, in another room. Again, there's very much this incidental, almost a <clears throat> William Curlick sense of things going on within the picture. There's this, there's this notion of, of uh, daily activities and a, and a recording of, of minutiae. You know, the, the toy, the Christmas toy. This must be a little bit after Christmas. And, um, in January. This also uh, reminds me, I should go back to Sunday. This is, uh, the Sunday morning series was very important for Jack. He did a lot of Sunday paintings. Now, the Sundays were also the times that we had these dinners, that we go for the walks, but the Sunday morning, so Sunday mornings, I think, for Jack had a sort of sense of anticipation, but also a sense of of desolation, and, and not desolation, but, but of emptiness. There's, you see that the air, like that blue, that clear blue sky has, a, has an amazing emptiness to it, a really, and, and I think that, that religiosity is of Jack's spirituality comes out in this light, and it's a kind of a very cool uh, Lutheran light, very crisp, uh, almost clinical to a certain extent. And, and his Sunday morning paintings always, always seem to have that uh, element to them. <clears throat> Okay, so here's Lake Huron number one. Um, Jack sort of discovered Lake Huron in, 19, in, the, in the early 70s, and, and uh, this is his first painting. I love this painting of the waves at Lake Huron. Lake Huron is an inland sea. Um, as, as you know, it's not a big place. It's not a great destination for Torontonians because it's, it's past that three-mile limit, which was great. Uh, three-hour, yeah, three-hour limit, sorry, which was, which was great for... Um, from London because it was completely unsullied by Torontonians. And, and it has these fantastic beaches that stretch for miles and miles. It's like the Bahamas, an amazing uh, destination. So we, all, we, had, we often, well, everybody went to Bayfield, was the, um, 
was the destination. And, and the Lake Huron coast, I think, for Jack was his his Mediterranean coast, um, like the Mediterranean Riviera was for Picasso. And there's there's a really odd little parallel. When Jack went down, uh, when he was in Spain and he met Picasso at, at Cannes in, in 1953, um, that was about exactly 17 years after Picasso met Dora Maar, who of course became his mistress. But the person who was one of the people who introduced him to Dora Maar was uh, Roland Penrose. Uh, Roland Penrose was a surrealist and a surrealist collector. Um, and uh, the brother of Lionel Penrose, who was a friend of my parents, and Lionel Penrose moved to London inexplicably <laughs> for some reason because he was a world famous geneticist. This is a funny thing about London, it was a magnet at that period of time. It was, it was, uh, it's hard to explain what happened there, why people came to London, but they did. They all assembled for this brief 30 year period. And um, so Lionel Penrose ended up going to um, Bayfield, which is where a lot of people from London and Ontario had their cottages and stayed at the Pemberton's place, which is where our family stayed as well, often. And sometimes people would stay with the, at the Downs place uh, in, <clears throat> uh, in Bayfield. So here with this odd parallel, again, you know, the Penroses uh, and these, these beach destinations, and, and uh, somehow Jack. Um, so there's funny convergences that, that take place, as well as that's just a coincidence. But, um, and oh, here's another interesting thing. In a sort of a strange homage to this painting, uh, Murray Favreau, uh, who is uh, another very interesting artist from London, Ontario, Murray uh, decided that he would do a version almost of this painting. Uh, but what he did was he, he, did a, he projected waves and he decided to make a moving wave machine, which had a, which he had a machine that made waves. He had boards moving under canvas like waves, getting you know, sort of closer and closer to you and then, and then subsiding. And then he projected over that a film, a loop film, of actual waves at Lake Huron. It was called the Wave Machine. I think it was here at this gallery for, it was, I don't know if it was, it was housed here for a while. I think Carmen Lamanna was, uh, was his gallery. It was the strangest thing to see, but it actually worked. You, if you turn the lights off, you, it, it was as if you were in a very small portion of the lake with the waves coming towards you. And it was, gives you an idea of how that scene Re, sort of, uh, I hate to use this term, resonated, but, but it echoed and re-echoed back and forth. There was a lot of uh, cross-fertilization of ideas, and, and, and uh, it was a very exciting uh, period of time. <coughs> um, let's move on to the metal. Um, and this is, from, again, from that, that period when he was doing, I think, some of his best work. This is a deserted field um, that was beside Gibbons Park. Jack, the closest park to Jack was Gibbon, where he lived in, northern, in, in North London. But there was a kind of a vacant field, or this was a vacant field, um, that was between Gibbons Park and a, a south curve of the Thames River, which on the other side of which was the UWO, the University of Western Ontario. And in 1972, when it started, was the last year that Tony Urquhart actually was teaching uh, there. Tony moved on to Waterloo. And, and actually, that was the beginning, in a sense, of an exodus from London. I think that was sort of as more and more artists began to leave, coming to Toronto or other, other towns. Um, and here's a picture of Jack in the same area. And he liked it. This is one of his actually favorite walking areas. I know this because we, we would sometimes go with walks in through this area. Here's a great picture of Jack in the middle north of Gibbons Park. Um, 1972, really a great shot of him. Looks like it's in the, in the afternoon, perhaps after on a pretty hazy day, um, and and has that he's got the, the, this photograph really captures that particular look that Jack had, where he really has an appraisal. He's got a very piercing look, and he he could tell when he was looking at something uh, aesthetically or critically, you know, in in, a, in an artistic sense, and this that really captures that this this particular photograph of, of Jack. <clears throat> um, and then one more. This is, um, this is a, a, an amazing painting. Again, this is uh, Lake, Lake Huron at the shore. Lake Huron, uh, the North Shore, before north of uh, the Pinery, there's kind of a cliff that goes along the whole shore. And then the beaches are at the base of, this, of these cliffs, these clay and sand cliffs. And they're quite high, I suppose. Not, I mean, not like mountains, but they're about 40 or 50 feet tall, and they have these, these ladders that go up them. This, this is a spectacular painting for me uh, to, to end on, because it, 
it, it's, it's that idyllic moment that he had. He had this period, this one long period between the diagnosis and, and, and uh, when he finally succumbed, I think it was 78 or 79, um, <clears throat> of, of duende, of, of the meaning, the, you know, this, his, his, he loved life passionately. And, and so there was a kind of a, a, a radiant peace in his life. And I think this painting really gets that. It, uh, um, it's almost it's like these stairwells. It, it's almost like a pun on, on a stairway to heaven, it seems to me. Because, it, because that end point is almost reversible. It's almost like the painting could flip over, like you'd be, it, those are like steps going down into a pool. And I don't know if you noticed, but the angle of the sky, of the clouds, I think what he did was he, he, he superimposed here a picture taken vertically of clouds overhead and then slanted it down. So you get, so you get this inadvertent effect of vertigo, of almost like, you know that sense where you're, if you're on top of a, a building and you, can't, and you just lie on top of a, of a roof and just look up at the sky, you could have the sense that you could, might fall into it. And I've always felt that about this painting, is that uh, that sky looks like something, a sky you could, you could fall into. <clears throat> so this is almost a, it's a very cosmic, uh, very cosmic painting for me. Um, and right, that's, that's it. <laughs> very good, thank okay. you. Thank you very much. Right. Thank you very much, Christopher, and um, thank you all for coming. I'd just like to mention a couple upcoming events here in Jackman Hall on March 21st, which is a Wednesday. Photographer Stephen Shore is coming to talk about his practice. Um, after that, I think the next moment in here would be Ian Baxter on April 4th. So as I mentioned before, the Chamber Show is up for another two months. Please go see it again if you have the time. And thank you again for your remarks tonight. Thank you for listening to this Art Guy of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.